This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Raymond Chang, welcome to Viral Jesus. It's one thing that I'm wrestling with personally of like, how much do I engage with the the media cycle versus knowing that there are people out there that are looking to either me or to the Asian American Christian Collaborative as a whole to kind of speak into a variety of issues. And if we miss it, then, um, then a lot of people could feel missed. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. As a professor of communication at Andrews University, one of my favorite classes to teach is intercultural communication. I am extremely passionate, especially as a Christian, about how we can approach a global church mindset and how do we have better conversations about race. For example, the ongoing COVID-19 crisis has brought about the conversation of anti-Asian discrimination. The Asian population is the fastest growing ethnic group in the United States and has become targets of discrimination discrimination, harassment, racial slurs, and physical attacks. As of early April 2020, there were around 72,000 posts with hashtag Wuhan virus and 10,000 others with the hashtag Kung Flu on Instagram alone. Integrated threat theory says that there are four kinds of threats that explain and predict negative attitudes toward minority groups, realistic threats, symbolic threats, intergroup anxiety, and negative stereotypes. Our guest today is Raymond Chang, who has been fighting against inequality, racism, and anti-Asian rhetoric. He is also a pastor, writer, and speaker traveling throughout the country to proclaim the way of Christ. Well, I am so excited, Raymond, to have you on. What I do when people come on is the first thing I like to do is make them very uncomfortable and read to them one of their (laughs) tweets. I have a couple of yours that I'm going to go through, but I'm going to start with your pin tweet. Okay. Your pin tweet says, in 13 minutes on NPR, I tried to proclaim the gospel in two different ways and show how the Christian faith is directly connected to actively opposing racism. So I'm going to ask you, how do you think the Christian faith is directly connected to actively opposing racism? All right, we are diving right into it. Well, (laughs) we are going straight for it. I I hope that's okay. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in a nutshell, racism is a sin. And the gospel is opposed to all sins. And so to oppose racism is a part of living out your Christian faith. I think the challenge that we're seeing now is that people don't all see racism in the same ways because their lived experiences and their uh, ideological commitments might shape them to basically miss what's right in front of them and to avoid mm-hmm. the, the problems that that many other people are facing. And so we're having a, in some ways, a crisis of definitions where people are defining things according to however it's convenient for them 
Um, and what's challenging is that the people that are in the margins are the ones that are most hurt as a result of that. And then the gospel is not able to shine and that the glory of God and, and the beauty of Jesus is not able to uh, be demonstrated and displayed. In another tweet, you say that Christianity would be better off if we focused on faithfulness to God more than trying to fit Christianity into conservative or progressive boxes. Okay, this is a loaded question, but why do you think we have lost the focus on faithfulness to God and become more focused on faithfulness? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of studies out there that show how political identities are now a greater source of uh, one's identity than their religion race or ethnicity. And that's a huge wow. kind of finding because it means that the average person in the United States or the average American is more Republican or Democrat than they are Christian. And if wow. we are Christian, this should be a deeply concerning issue for us because we're basically living with the reality that the average Christian in the United States, whether they want to admit it or not, worships a donkey or an elephant more than the Lamb of God. And I think the problem that we're seeing is that the rising generations are taking note of this, that, um, that, that people who have been seeking unity and trying to overcome these types of divisions are, are getting exhausted and that it's actually even surfacing in things like what we would call the purple church. And so, so for example, um, you know, partisan political identities have overtaken the church to the point that People celebrate the notion of being a purple church, which I think is a good thing, or a church that has both red and blue representation in it, um, or that has red and blue voters in its pews. But what I'm actually seeing now with many purple churches is that they don't seem to be churches that are filled with people who are wrestling with ideas or policy issues with each other, but are operating out of kind of political affiliations that are core to their identities, and they're avoiding political issues or avoiding political problems. And when they do, and then when they actually, mm. when they actually start addressing the issues, one of the, re- the, the things I'm seeing about a lot of purple churches is that they don't actually grow, they shrink because for too long, they've put the political issues to the side, assuming that if they don't just address, if they don't address the issues that are uh, dividing us, that eventually, you know, like it'll just go away or that people will get better. But I, in my imagination, I, th- I would think that the purple church, you know, could bring the best of both conservative thinking and the best of progressive thinking, submit it unto the Lordship of Christ, and then actually help the society chart a better path forward. But instead, a lot of churches that have sizable numbers of people from both parties simply seem to coexist without bringing the best of their thinking, the best of their ideas to the table, which ultimately ends up perpetuating the problems we're seeing around polarization. I mean, that is, I did not know that. I have not read that study that people feel more Republican or Democrat than even their own race or faith. That is astounding to me. And what do you think it says? You you had mentioned earlier, like the younger generations are noticing that. And that's something that I think correlates with the research we see out of Barna, where young people say, what does my faith even have to do with my life. Like I go to church and what you're talking about with the purple church idea, nobody's talking about what's actually happening in my real life and what my friends are talking about. And so then I don't even understand how it connects to my faith. What what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the challenge is that, you know, people are going to leave the Christian faith for a variety of reasons. Uh, by first leaving the church because there's no church that seems to be able to 
apply or contextualize or recontextualize the gospel into the very issues that they want to see Christ exalted in. And so when the church doesn't have answers for the complex problems that we're facing in the world, they look elsewhere. And sadly, these other sources are doing a far better job um, of explaining the the problems, even acknowledging that the problems exist, and then providing a more compelling solution forward than the church has, which is often, let's just be unified together without addressing the issues that are dividing us instead of seeing how Christ enters into every division and shows us what things are rooted in um, idolatry, what things are rooted in righteousness, what things are rooted in a pursuit of justice, what things are going to lead to uh, a a shalom that he's calling for, uh, and what things are ultimately going to help the witness of the church manifest. Yeah, that is super fascinating to me. Something that I've been wondering is, where do you think this obsession, or, or maybe it's always been there. And I think maybe that's what I'm realizing the older I get. I was going to ask you, where did it begin? Where did the church's fascination or obsession with political beliefs and tying itself to a political party begin? But maybe it's always been there. What do you think? When people organize, it's always around a variety of issues. And one of those things are around power, right? And so when and that's basically what politics is. It's about the di- distribution of power. And so when people feel like they're unheard, when people feel like they're ignored, when people feel like they're marginalized, they find ways to kind of collectivize and to 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 collect and gather power. Um, and some of that is for, you know, their literal survival, as we've seen throughout history, um, you know, it, like the civil rights movement, it, African-Americans collectivized because they knew that they didn't have sufficient representation uh, or even any meaningful representation at all in the broader society. And, you know, one of the things that you've seen as a result of that is that they, they mobilized together and they worked together rooted from a lot of Christian conviction, actually, if you follow like the, the narrative of, of Dr. Right, King and right. the, the, the broader stories within the civil rights era uh, to, represent and to pursue the the flourishing of those who are in the margins. You know, you've, you've seen this all throughout history, you know, as well, you know, within the Asian American community or the, the Latino communities. And one of the things that we see consistently is that the lack of political power and the lack of political representation has led to deep pains, deep harms, and deep frustrations that are leading different constituencies to find ways to mobilize so that they can um, kind of gain greater greater uh, voice and greater uh, representation. And how do you think this all plays out with social media? Because I'm just thinking you go to church and it used to be that maybe I had no idea what you voted like or what you thought on immigration, what your thoughts were on racism. I would have had no idea maybe. And now I'm sitting down in a pew next to somebody who I just saw did this long Facebook post saying that anybody who who says black lives matter is chanting this witch you know spiritualism so how do you think this is all played out social media entering the scene we're already highly politicized maybe we always were but now i know what do you think social media has done to the well church? i think social media has in some ways revealed the problems that have long kind of existed within our society 
and brought it to the surface. It's given marginal voices or marginalized voices uh, kind of a microphone or a microphone or uh, a megaphone. And right. now stories, voices, experiences, perspectives that were often considered radical or fringe or out there or not important are kind of taking center stage in a lot of ways because people in both the church and outside the church care about, about all human beings because all human beings are made in the image of God. Um, it's just challenging when some segments of the church uh, resist even acknowledging that the problems exist. So what do you think? Should Christianity be totally devoid of any political involvement? How much is too much? And how do we practically manage the balance in all of this? Oh, Christian political engagement. That's, I mean, political engagement and political theory is all, you know, is complicated, you know, in on its own. But Christian political engagement is is also challenging. I love the work that the AND campaign is doing. So, you know, people like Justin Gibney, they're like, I think they're really leading the way uh, on a lot of issues for... Um, for Christian public and civic and political engagement. And so what they are doing is essentially what I think more Christians should be engaged with. So it's, it's not one that is devoid of, you know, uh, addressing political issues, but one that's actually engaging political issues deeply out of Christian convictions. And so that means right. that on some issues, you're going to look like you're more left. On other issues, you're going to look like you're more right, but you're constantly navigating from your Christian faith, what to do in any particular circumstance. The other challenge around politics is that it's not a fixed point. It's just not a fixed reality. And so a lot of Christians um, and shallow Christian thinking has led to led, led many people to believe that if we just kind of hold this X, Y, and Z type of line or this type of thinking, then everything will eventually get better. But with the shifting of demographics, the shifting of society, the shifting of attitudes, the kind of uh, impact of the economics um, and you know natural disasters and things of that sort, you know political challenges start to transform and start to take kind of different shape. And so we always have to be kind of in an active sort of way, applying our Christian convictions into kind of the political uh, scene. That makes a lot of sense. Tell us about the Asian American Christian Collaborative, an organization which you are the president of. What work do you do with this initiative? What prompted it? Where did this, what was this born out of? Yeah, I mean, I think we formed um, on the back uh, of the rising pandemic. And so um, with the former president's kind of rhetoric around China virus, Kung flu, China flu. Right. Uh, I think a lot of co race conscious Asian American Christians uh, started realizing that this is going to lead to problems for Asian Americans broadly. And it was non-Christians non as well that were kind of mindful of this. Those who understood how the history of the Asian American kind of communities unfolded were mindful that rhetoric has often led to significant violence. And so one of the things that we wanted to do early on was to craft a statement that would help equip churches, that would help provide churches with language and a framework for thinking about the variety of issues, and then to kind of encourage them to, uh, to address a lot of these issues, either through the pulpit or through their uh, kind of their Sunday school classes or through their small groups. 
uh, as we were seeing kind of the rise of anti-Asian uh, kind of hate and violence, which I think as of recent uh, have hit over 6,600 cases just in the United States. Wow. You know, we've seen multiple people um, killed. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, right. the, the shootings in Atlanta, which um, led eight people, um, led to eight people's deaths, uh, six of whom were Asian women. Um, and and I think in a lot of ways, what we were trying to do is kind of get these frameworks and get the the message out so that we could prevent some of this from happening. And, and our hope is that some of it has kind of reached some communities, especially as churches use this um, to use the kind of the statements that we wrote both on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19 to uh, the Atlanta massacre. Um, as as resources for their own churches uh, to to fuel their own and and to kind of give language to their own preaching and things like that. Um, but one of the things that I've been most encouraged by, I think, is that from the most local of government to the federal government, we have been invited to to speak into a variety of issues. So, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of our Illinois senators' offices reached out to see if we could kind of help uh, participate in some of the events that they were doing. The local Chicago mayor's office reached out to me. Uh, I'm in Chicago to uh, participate in a special commission that they're putting together. And then, you know, I work also at Wheaton College, and uh, the 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 city of Wheaton, their their uh, city council, or there's actually reached out to me and said, "Could you kind of help us for?" like some events that we're doing during uh, API Heritage Month. And so we've been really encouraged to be in discussions with like the Jerusalem to the, uh, to, to Samaria, to, to Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth within wow. the United States, at least uh, when it comes to a lot of these issues. And I think much of that has been driven by um, kind of our, our public st- stances and our Christian witness. And so the fact that they're reaching out to an organization that has the name Christian in it was of deep encouragement to me because it's saying that, you know, we're able to lead with our, with, with the Christian name. We also know that there are are people and organizations that just won't support us because, you know, we have Christian in our name. And so I've been finding that as well. And so I'm really encouraged when people feel like, oh, Christians have something to offer in this discussion. Um, but also very mindful that, you know, we carry a lot of baggage with the Christian name, especially how it's been practiced in some spaces. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19 and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, Your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. 
anti-racism work is it's different because it's not just like it's not just you talking about this issue, right? Because as a person of color myself, like we are directly tied to the conversation. And so I just want to ask you, like, what has been challenging about that? That aspect of being so personally tied to the conversation. And especially then when we add in the elements of the church, which is, you know, the community that we felt safe in and has raised us and and in some ways have felt neglected by in recent years. What is all this like for you? I'm just asking you, Raymond, personally. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think on the one hand, I'm deeply encouraged that there's um, attention being given to these issues. Uh, sadly, I think that there's been more attention given by the world to these issues than by the church as a whole. There are segments of the church that have been talking about this for a long time. The black church has been faithful through and through. Right. Um, uh, and so, you know, that, uh, that segment of the church has been, you know, a shining light and a beacon um, to the whole world, really, when it comes to addressing issues of racism, um, especially anti-black racism. But when it comes to like my personal soul, I think, you know, Beyond the exhaustion or the encouragement, I think that there is a part of me that's exhausted because I have to, like you said, um, in some ways, take myself out of the equation when I'm bringing when I'm when I'm addressing some of these issues because um, it's a part of my own experience, and in some ways, I have to unhealthily right. dissociate uh, because otherwise, it becomes too emotionally um, overwhelming or too emotionally taxing or. Uh, too emotionally discouraging, and um, and so it's one thing that I'm wrestling with personally of like how much do I engage with the the media cycle versus knowing that there are people out there that are looking to either me or to the Asian American Christian Collaborative as a whole to kind of speak into a variety of issues, and if we miss it, then um, then a lot of People could feel missed, or can feel like um, like uh, like certain things aren't being addressed that should be addressed, and we're we're trying to balance all that, um, you know, in 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 the best way that we can. But I think that the there's a deep encouragement and a deep exhaustion that I consistently feel, um, mostly because these are things that not just affect people who uh, look like me or other racially minoritized communities but um, are a part of my own life and I have to process through it myself as well. And I want to take a second to affirm you because I just had Karen Swallow Pryor on and something she was saying was that a calling comes from the outside. So she was talking about how often in this generation, it's like, oh, well, God has called me to this. It's just something we feel internally. And she's like, but God will also call you externally. Other doors will open. People will start nudging you in that direction. They'll take notice of it and God will open opportunities. And we see that in your ministry and in your activism, where the outside with what you described is opening itself up. So you have been called to this. I want to affirm that for you. You have been called to this. That said... Do you ever feel like quitting? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I parts of me want to live a quiet life with, you know, right. with my family and, you know, like it would be great if Jessica, my wife and I could just, you know, enjoy our life uh quietly and, you know, there there are parts of me that certainly feels like this is too much. Um and I have an I have amazing team members 
that I get to work with and they all carry significant amounts on their shoulders, especially because at this point, everyone is volunteer with AACC. And so, you know, mm. like we not only have full-time jobs, but then we have this right. uh, in the midst of probably uh, a season where Asian Americans uh, have gone from invisibility to hyper visibility. And most people don't right. know what to do with that. And so uh, we're trying to steward you know, this well while simultaneously doing justice to the com- members of our communities that are kind of hurting in some significant ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always, I think, anyone who pursues God's justice, I think in any significant way, I, I have at least heard that they've all wondered if they should quit. <laughs> wow. That's actually a really powerful statement. Yeah. Anyone who pursues God's justice at some point will wonder if they should quit. Actually, Beth Moore says something. She says, much of the war against the devil is just about whether or not you'll quit. So how do we keep moving forward? That's the question, right? I think we, we <laughs> I think one, it, it, you know, like cultivating our inner lives and our internal lives is, is so important. I mean, I, I don't think that I can get through anything that I do without prayer, regular time in God's word where God is speaking right. to me, um, can fellowship with, with fellow believers, um, especially other believers who are leading organizations and kind of are dealing with some of the same encouragements as well as some of the same criticisms and, um, and navigating all that. Uh, so I think cultivating the inner life and seeing it not as an individual project, but as a communal project, right? Our faith is not merely just us and Jesus or me and Jesus, but it really is like our primary identity, I yes. think, is the church, right? Uh, you know, our primary right. identity in Christ is the church. Christ died for the church. And so, you know, making sure that, you know, like we are deeply uh, rooted in the church is, is also important because the church is going to at least it should be the primary source of encouragement. What's challenging though, is um, that, you know, that the church is laid upon a racialized framework and has never interrogated or excavated uh, itself out of it. And so the same problems you see in the world when it comes to issues of race or a lot of other injustices uh, emerge within the church and, um, and the answer of quote unquote, just preaching the gospel without actually naming and specifically identifying the sins of racism with that emerge within our own thinking and within the structures of our churches and our organizations is leading to further um, division and, and harm. Um, but I, you know, like you mentioned Beth Moore, I remember her once tweeting something that I thought was really helpful. She, she was quoting Hamilton and basically saying that some of us just need to learn how to outlast everyone else. <laughs> um, uh. And I was like, yeah, that's, good and true, but I'm like, some entrenchments are just so deep. And so how do we do that? Um, And I think that the only way to do that is if the the Holy Spirit really just carries you through. And if the body of believers around you actually engage in the Christian practices of faith and repentance. I think a lot of people burn out, uh, especially those who are minoritized within a variety of spaces, whether whether it's along racial or gender lines. you know, they they end up leaving not because they don't want to stay, but because there's a lack of repentance from fellow believers, from people that say wow. that they're, you know, they serve the same God, that they, you know, submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ, that they, you know, are committed to the gospel. And that's the, actually the number one thing that I'm finding within a lot of spaces where people 
especially kind of people of color end up leaving. You know, it's because of um, the lack of repentance. You're at Wheaton College. I am a professor at Colorado Christian University. Question I often ask my students is, what's, what is a story of your life that you think retrospectively or looking back feels symbolic of who you are right now? So I wanted to ask you, this is the first time I've ever asked anybody this on the podcast, but I was thinking of you and I was like, I wonder, I would love to hear it. Is there a story that you can think of from your life that feels now like symbolic of, of a larger plan that maybe God had for you or where you see yourself right now? There are probably two stories, I think, that are symbolic you know, I think, you know, I, because I moved around so much, I was able to navigate different spaces. Actually, there might be three short snort stories. Hey, we got time, Raymond. <laughs> tell us. The first story is, I think, like I said, I moved around a lot. And so, you know, like back then it was like important to be cool. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think the kids really care about being cool anymore, which I'm so grateful for because <laughs> they don't like, they actually celebrate, you know, the you know differences among themselves. Right. Whereas like, for us, there was a definition, like there was, you were either cool or you were not cool. And because I moved right. around so much, in some spaces, I found that I was quote unquote cool. And in other spaces, I found myself as a complete like loser, right? I was just like the, <laughs> the outcast of of the litter. And I just didn't understand like how in one place I could be so embraced and in the next place I was so <laughs> rejected. Um, but I mean, like, for example, even in I, I probably went to like three or four elementary schools. Um, I went to five high schools. You know, so I moved around oh, wow. a lot. Um, and so that was interesting for me to see because it, it seemed like acceptance and embrace, um, coolness and non-coolness, whatever the opposite of coolness is, were all kind of relative to like the, the people that you were interacting with or how that community perceived you. Obviously, some people transcend cool, you know, like, like Jeremy Lin, I think is going to transcend cool no matter where he goes. <laughs> but, you know, for the average person like me, you know, I, there's not that like transcendence, right? The, the second piece, I think, um, is that because in some spaces I was so severely bullied uh, for a variety of reasons, including my ethnicity and race, um, mm. it always drew me to those who were in the margins, Right. And so I always kind of, mm -hmm. I developed an eye for those who were kind of viewed as outcasts or viewed as, you know, as a part of the edge of any given kind of community or society. And I think God developed eyes through those kind of really painful experiences. So that was the redemptive work that God did. Uh, so that, you know, um, when it came to the point of me advocating for people, you know, like, those in the edges were the people that I was always drawn to. Those in the margins are those who I was always drawn mm. to. And the, the third story, I think, in terms of like what defined me was this period in which I left the pursuit of a very lucrative career when I was living, I was, I was living in Korea at the time. And I was in a kind of interviewing process. And at the same time, I just felt like God was saying, pursue me first, pursue me first. And wow. um, through a variety of things, including a, a sermon by Francis Chan and then another sermon by Tim Keller and then the prayers of my mother, who's a very godly woman, I felt like God was just saying, spend, 60, spend two months in prayer. And so I returned mm -hmm. back from Korea to LA uh, where my parents lived and just spent two months in prayer. And that was like the 
most clarifying uh, kind of experience of my life because a lot of the idols that were in my heart and that had hardened my heart kind of broke down and were uh, chiseled away. And it was the deepest kind of season of intimacy with God. I mean, I just remember struggling to pray at the beginning. Like it, it, Even like getting a sentence out was hard because I was just so far from God. And this was like in my mid-20s. And then, you know, over time, especially after week three and week four and week five, like I would be spending hours upon hours in prayer with God. And mm. I think the thing that I realized through that moment or through that kind of season was that, you know, God will sustain you through a lot of different things, um, especially through the most challenging things. And, you know, in part, it's just continuing to submit to him and to kind of and to accept his covering over you um, as you engage with him in prayer and as you hear from him through scripture and through kind of the 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 wisdom of your friends. Um, and I think the combination of the three kind of allowed it so so that I would have some level of endurance and stamina in pursuing justice out of a deeply committed Christian conviction. Uh, with my eyes towards those in the margins. I want to hang on that just for one second, um, because I know that there's people listening, you know, you're a pastor, you're a speaker, you're successful. I just think it's helpful for people listening to recognize that there were times in a season that you felt like you couldn't pray. Multiple seasons. And so if you, yeah. So if you could just lean into that for a second and, and go back there for whoever's in that right now, what do you say? How how did you bring yourself to even find the words to pray? And, and and actually, let me ask this too. How long was that process of darkness? Because I think sometimes, you know, with scripture, we flip a page and now Joseph is out of the pit and we forget that there's 17 years in between, right? So what? how long was this process for you of just feeling totally disconnected? So I would say that there are multiple seasons that I experienced something similar, mm. right? Especially pre 30 years old, I would say that that happened more frequently than not. Um, but I would say that the, this particular one was the longest stint and it was like probably about a year and a half in which I just felt completely distant from God and to the point where I felt like I was deserted by God. Um, mm -hmm. and so I felt like I had to figure life on my own. And a part of it was like the life stage that I was in, you know, the, the anxieties from like, finding yourself through your career. Um, right. No, not knowing if, you know, like marriage was something that God had in store for you. And then if it was like, who would you get married to? And wondering that question. And then, um, and then the economic challenges, right. Of like, how are you going to survive when you're not necessarily like building a particular career trajectory that is already set for you. And so a lot of those things kind of were, factors. And instead of leaning into God, as much as I wanted to lean into God, I felt like I had to take it upon myself, which is what I did. And mm -hmm. the more I I knew in my head uh, what to do, the more my heart rejected doing it. And it was very difficult. I mean, like, it just felt like, the, like it, I wanted God to answer me immediately. So if I said, God, I would like you to provide me with this. I wanted God to be my genie in a bottle. Right. And right. when he didn't answer, like I just said, Oh, that's what I expected. And so I just moved on. <laughs> um, 
Um, like it is really up to me. It's not, you know, like I, I don't, I, right. in my head, I knew that God was the provider of all things and uh, all good gifts come from God. But in my heart, I just have a real hard time believing it. And so at some point I just realized like, you know what? I really miss God. And it came in a significant way through a rebuke from my mom, um, which I found was really helpful. And she didn't really know like how distant I was from God, but she just noticed that like, I would give her responses about like my relationship with God because she would ask me questions about how, how, you know, how's your prayer life and how's this and how's that. And she just said, like, I don't think that you're living out your faith in a way that, you know, is actually connecting you in any meaningful way to God. And, and it just was, I mean, she said it very gently, but it was also a little more harsher than that. Um, (laughs) And it, I think that the rebuke was extremely helpful um, because she basically said, like, repent from your ways of, of self-reliance mm-hmm. and self-dependence and then turn to God because God's the one that's going to make all things work out for you. And he's the one that's going to lead and guide you. And if your life doesn't look the way that you, want, you currently imagine it to look, God will be the one to faithfully carry you through. Um, but she was basically like, you need to repent. And I don't know what's in your life or I don't know what's going on in your life, but you need to repent and you need to turn to God instead of turning away from God. And, and I heeded that. And that's what led me to at least commit to two months of prayer, even though the first month was excruciating. I mean, it was like the first three weeks or two, the first three weeks to a month, I could barely pray for more than five minutes. And even mm-hmm. five minutes felt like I was pulling my teeth out. Um <laughs> Because it was just nothing would come to my mind because I don't think that in my heart, I genuinely believe that, that God cared about me and that God was wow. like actively calling me into life with him. Um, I just felt like God is going to do what he does. He's leaving me to do what I do. And then where I need his sticker on my arm or whatever, a label on my chest, I'll put on the God sticker and then that's what it was. Um, mm. But God wanted so much more and he wanted to invite me into kind of living out his kingdom here in this world and I think it was through the prayer process that a lot of that unfolded. And then just realizing that really in, in everything that we do, prayer really gets there first. And so, um, yeah, just knowing that God listens to even the prayers that you feel like are offered, you know, in insincerity and then receives that and then transforms that into intimacy with him. Uh, it's something that I think I'm, I've, I've realized over the years, especially through that season. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I want to actually, before you go, I just want to leave us with, with something people can do if they're interested in learning more about anti-racism work, if they're interested in trying to understand, because the Asian community has been largely invisible for the last several years, where would you tell them to start? Is there a book our listeners can get? Are you writing a book? Where, what can people do to, after this podcast is over playing, say, you know what, I want to educate myself in this space. Yeah. Um, I'm considering whether I should write a book or not. So I've been talking to some publishers and some agents and trying to figure out whether that's something I should pursue. I hope you will do it. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you will do it. Yeah. I have to finish my PhD too. So uh, eventually I'll get to doctor level, but that's that's one thing I'm thinking about. But if they if people wanted to kind of get more engaged, there's a few ways. One is they, they should definitely sign up for our newsletter. You go to AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com and then uh, sign up for that newsletter because they'll get updates on like the events that we're doing, you know, and, and the resources that we have. And so, for example, we 
hosted and organized a march for Black Lives and Dignity in Chicago uh, in 2020. And um, we're just kind of blown away by the fact that we had somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people from representing wow. over 100 churches show up, marching from wow. uh, the his- historic 100-plus-year-old Chinese-American church to a historic 100-plus-year-old African-American church that's pastored by Charlie Dates, um, uh, and, and doing something like that. And then seeing how those churches really blossomed uh, a, a, a really beautiful relationship as a result. And then, of course, we held wow. simultaneous rallies following the Atlanta shootings um, in 14 different cities, uh, from Atlanta to LA to Chicago to New York to DC to Dallas, Austin, Houston, uh, Seattle, San Francisco, Boston, Minneapolis, and, and I think there's a few others. And so, you know, people can participate in that, put feet to their faith uh, when events like that happen. There's also a bunch of resources that they can find on our website. Uh, but then also follow us on social media, um, AA Christ Collab. Uh, that's kind of on our Instagram, our, our, our Twitter, and then uh, Asian American Christian Collaborative on Facebook. And then if they're interested in finding me on uh, social media, on Twitter, I'm Tweet Ray Chang and on Instagram, I am Ray Chang five zero two, and so uh, you get to basically drop into my head every now and then as I release thoughts. <laughs> Thanks, Ray, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I scour the Viral Jesus hashtags on all of our social channels and look for a message from someone who maybe you haven't heard of yet, but you should certainly be following as they grow viral. Today, we talk to triathlete Sam Dumcombe. All right, Sam, what did you just find out like a half hour ago, 10 minutes ago, and I'm so excited I get to be a part of it? Maybe it was like five minutes ago, no, 10 minutes ago. Um, I got news that I will be part of Team USA going to Australia for the multi-sports world championships. So that's run, bike, run racing. And that's going to be happening in August of 2022. So just got that notice today. So super exciting. That is amazing. And we can all follow you on that journey. But as they head over to your Instagram, I want you to just talk to them a little bit about what your passion is online and what you've been kind of navigating through sharing some personal stories. Yeah. So a really big thing with my journey right now is coming from the Marines. I had like a period of job loss and it really triggered my PTSD that I haven't struggled with for several years, but it's Mm -hmm. always been in the background. I've just never really gotten help for it. And so in kind of this secluded COVID season, because just circumstances worked itself out, I was actually able to get some real help. And so now on my Instagram, I'm starting to share some things that I learned through my cognitive behavior therapy training, Mm. more so for me. But then some of the feedback I started getting from friends was like, hey, man, this is some really good stuff. Thank you for sharing. Nobody likes to talk about the struggle when they're in it. They talk about it afterwards. And so I'm starting to use my online platform to just really share what I'm learning and going through to be able to help others that are going through the same thing. Well, now you're on Team USA, so you've done it all. You've got to go follow Sam if you are interested in his journey, talking about, you know, really personal and intimate things about his PTSD and stuff like that, or just his athletics. Go ahead and follow him on Instagram at Sam Dumcombe. 
We have got to support him as he grows viral. Thanks so much, Sam. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Join us next week as we have a conversation with author and gun reform activist, Taylor Schumann. Taylor is a survivor of a school shooting and wrote a fantastic book called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. You will not want to miss my conversation with Taylor. See you next week on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.